Hi everyone, my name's Anita. I'm editor of Interval. Thanks for coming and braving this shitty weather, the worst day of Melbourne summer. Before we start, I'd like to acknowledge the Boon people, the traditional owners of this land on which we're gathered, and pay my respects to their elders, both past and present. Thanks to the M Pavilion for hosting the very first Interval event. Interval's a new platform I've been developing with Keith Deverell, our artistic director. It's a platform for documentary art that will have three arms that we'll be launching in the coming months. We'll be having screenings, online publishing and more events like this one. We're interested in expanding documentary beyond its traditional forms and exploring what we call the interval between reality and representation. This, is a, this event is about the relationship between thought and effect in non-fiction representation. This lectern's too short. It, <laughs> Um, oh, thanks, Gabrielle. <laughs> it's about how we make meaning from... It's about how we make meaning and also the voice we use to inscribe and interpret the world of images. It's also about power. To represent something is an act of power, sometimes of domination. When we represent things, it's important to look at ourselves and critique our imposition in the circle of meaning and interpretation. I don't want to speak too long because I'm a terrible public speaker, which I think comes back to why I'm so interested in representation. As soon as people are watching me, I feel like I can't be myself. I'm very conscious of your gaze and I guess I'm performing. This is one of the reasons why I thought it would be good to organise performance lectures for the first interval event. I see documentary as performance and I think we're collectively becoming more and more performative as we document, upload and archive ourselves online. As we become more and more submerged in this strange mirror image of ourselves, I'm hoping that Interval can become a platform to poke holes in it. I think it's interesting to question whether the category of documentary is even useful anymore and whether we can move to a time of post-documentary, a term that Keith uses. I think he's here somewhere. Um, I'm still working that out. Anyway, I'd like to introduce these three amazing artists, Gabrielle DeVitri, Benjamin Lichtenstein and, and Eugenia Lim. I'm not going to read out their bios, but I just want to mention a couple of things. I chose these artists because I think they have unique and also contrasting approaches in making and interpreting images. Eugenia works with video and performance and makes work that explores nationalism, identity and power. When I approached Eugenia with the concept, I asked her if it sounded too sentimental and she responded that she didn't think there's enough sentimentality in contemporary art. I was really happy to hear her say that because I'm interested in creating a dialogue with Interval that's very disarming and sincere and I'm hoping these artists will help to set that tone. Ben's practice seems to be a natural extension of his personality. He's a conceptual artist without trying too hard to be. He works intuitively. He's a photographer who manipulates his images in the darkroom. He doesn't usually perform, but I've seen him make a wedding speech and make everyone cry, so really excited to see him perform tonight. Gabrielle wrote her thesis on the performance lecture, so she has a head start. She's interested in language and meaning and questioning the construction of index indexical links, semiotics and power, among other things. As you'll see shortly, Gabrielle has a lot, of say, a lot to say and she's been struggling to squeeze it into her time frame, so I'll let her get started. Enjoy. Is that on? Okay. So I'd like to start by echoing Anita's acknowledgement of country and pay my respects to the custodians of this land, their elders past and present, and extend that respect to Indigenous Australians here tonight. In 1835, in exchange for a few blankets, uh, some handkerchiefs, some bags of flour, some shirts, some tools and mirrors, Sir John Batman awarded himself 500,000 acres of land, including the land that we're standing on today. 
Batman is often praised for being the only European to have negotiated a treaty with the Aboriginal custodians of the land, despite the fact that there are doubts whether the Kulin elders with whom he negotiated actually understood the exchange as a contractual transfer of land. Batman has also been described by his neighbour, the artist John Glover, as a rogue, thief, liar, cheat, a murderer of blacks and the vilest man I have ever known. So when I acknowledge country, I acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. Not to Batman, after whom streets over there and parks all around Melbourne are named. Not to the Port Phillip Association, the association which backed Batman's expeditions, funded by Charles Swanston, after whom the street up there is named. And not to the Crown, to whom these gardens, more streets, and these monuments are dedicated. This is the opening. This pavilion, situated here on Aboriginal land, is like a series of umbrellas, semi-permanent umbrellas, which is convenient because, as Nietzsche once wrote, I've forgotten my umbrella. When I stand under an umbrella, do I understand the umbrella? In Old English, the oldest historical form of the English language, understanding was only one step of comprehension. The word developed from a spatial metaphor, which, whose idea it was that standing in a certain position allows the observer to get to know the properties of an object. Given that, though, I don't quite understand the underbit of understand, because right now I'm standing on, I'm standing before. If I step forward a bit, you could even say I'm standing among. But I'm not really standing under the thing that I'm trying to understand, or, or the thing that I'm trying to get you to understand. It doesn't do much good to our comprehension of things to stand under. I guess I stand under this ceiling, and so do you. Well, most of you well, some of you are standing and the rest of you are sitting, but in the sense that you're present, you're existing, you're constant, you are standing. And the first step to eliciting one another's sympathy, one another's understanding, is to be close to each other, to be in the vicinity of each other, literally. And so we must all understand this non-metaphorical roof, the ceiling of this pavilion which shelters us. And under these circumstances, we can begin to understand the use of under in understand. How many times has a speaker denounced the hierarchical nature of the lecture format, of the imbalanced teacher-student relationship, of the division between performer and audience in the theatre of pedagogy, only to embrace their position as the holder and deliverer of knowledge and proceed to impart their knowledge on a seated sea of quiet vessels waiting to be filled? In West Saxon Old English, a dialect of the oldest historical form of the English language. The word understandan coexisted with two other words. The first one, forstandan, for meaning in front of, and standan meaning to stand. This to me appears to be a more accurate spatial description of how institutional learning takes place today. It described everything that standing in front of could entail. It simultaneously meant to protect or defend, to help, to resist, to oppose, to benefit, to signify, or to be equal to. And at the same time, the word undergeaten existed. Under meaning amongst, and geaten meaning to get. Undergeaten meant to appreciate, to realise or to apprehend. Things that can only really be achieved in proximity. So the idea of getting amongst it and standing in front of it was synonymous with the idea of understanding. In English now, under means under. 
It very rarely means anything else. In German, however, unter is often used even today to mean among or between, like unter uns, between us or among ourselves. And yet the word today in German for understand is not unterstehen. It's not vorstehen, which would relate to vorstanden, but it's verstehen. Now, stehen is understood as standing, stand, but fair is a very interesting, quite slippery verbal prefix. Fair is used to denote transition, often into a negative state. It's used in words like verlassen, to abandon, verlieren, to lose, vergessen, to forget, and verderben, to go bad. So all things that are transitioning into a negative state. So what is it doing in Verstehen? What's it got to do with understanding? What the fair in Verstehen suggests to me is that in the process of understanding, the, the standing position of the perceiver must necessarily become destabilized by standing before, standing behind, standing next to, withstanding and getting amongst it and transitioning through confusion, as some of you may be doing right now, as necessary steps to understanding. And more literally, in German, Unterstand means a shelter or a refuge. In the middle of an octagonal room in the Neues Museum in Berlin, the bust of Nefertiti stands. So look out that way. She's protected in a glass refuge. It's the only piece in the entire museum to be granted a room to itself. The viewer enters from the side where I am to see the Egyptian queen in profile. And she looks out, out of the room to the far end of the adjoining gallery. Now the museum claims that she is alone. And at first, she appears to be alone. And yet, she isn't. She is accompanied by one other sculpture. A crude, oversized bronze bust. Whoops. Stands here, in an alcove of a room. It's the bust of James Simon. He is the museum's greatest benefactor. And the man who commissioned the dig in 1912, where the bust of Nefertiti was uncovered and subsequently illegally removed from Egypt. In this new curation, the bust of James Simon is directed to look exactly at the bust of Nefertiti, locked into a gaze that she cannot return in a curated declaration of possession. Possession by the collector, possession by the museum, and possession by Germany. In this same museum, almost all of the other Egyptian sculptures have their noses chopped off. While a likely explanation is that the protrusion of the nose makes it susceptible to damage, it can be seen on sculptures where the fingers and toes are still perfectly intact and where the nose is clearly protected by other elements of the sculpture, such as this one hiding behind a tablet. These appear more like intentional disfigurations, the nose chopped off in the belief that the spirit of a person continues to live in their effigies and that the only way to prevent the resurrection of a tomb statue that you may have stolen 
was to remove their final link with the real world, their lifeline via the nose. So with their no mouths closed and their noses chopped off, they could no longer breathe, no longer talk, no longer kiss, no longer see their souls rise out in front of them as they smoke. The Egyptians, however, were adept at a different kind of transference. Letters were invented so that we may be able to converse, even with the absent. They were signs of sounds, and these in turn were signs of things we think. Books are the way the dead talk to the living. When written language first spread around the world, some people feared that the, that the reader may become possessed by the writer. People were suspicious of the stealthy way in which the words of the writer could silently slip into the mind of the reader. And so to avoid becoming possessed, they would get a slave or a subordinate to read the text aloud on their behalf. But language wasn't always that easy to read. In fact, it wasn't until the 4th century AD that the first instance of silent reading was recorded. There is an account of Alexander the Great totally bewildering his soldiers by reading a letter from his mother in complete silence. They describe it, his eyes scanning the page, his tongue held still. It wasn't until late in the 4th century, uh, late in the Middle Ages, that writers, until, it was until late in the Middle Ages, writers assumed that their readers would hear as well as see the text, much as they themselves spoke the words out loud as they composed them. We see this assumption upheld in Hollywood today. Dearest Brian, a guy like me looks in the mirror, he either grins or he starts to fade away, and I haven't seen anything to grin about in a long time. This may not be the most graceful exit, but I know when the bottle's empty, but the only thing I'm really going to miss is the conversations we had going. At least I get the last word, even if I had to mail it in. Coglin's Law. Bury the dead, they stink up the joint. As for the rest of Coglin's Laws, ignore them. The guy was always full of shit. <laughs> but I guess you knew that already. What is written remains. A letter, an email, an engraving. These things are solid and tangible. They last, they last long after the writer has stopped expressing them or thinking them. Love, freedom, self-control, beauty, youth. These things are fleeting. The word tattoo was brought back to Europe by Captain James Cook after his first voyage to Tahiti and New Zealand in 1771. Australia paid tribute to uh, Jap Captain James Cook and to his discovery of the word tattoo when it purchased, dismantled and shipped Cook's Cottage from England to Melbourne. Now apart from the fact that Captain James Cook never um, set foot on Victorian soil, let alone lived in Fitzroy Gardens where the cottage now sits. There's something funny about Cook's cottage. 
Does anyone know what it is? It's tiny? That's pretty funny. <laughs> it, I'll give you a clue. It's in the punctuation. The funny thing about Cook's Cottage is the apostrophe. It reveals that this house, originally claimed to be the birthplace and home of Captain James Cook, is nothing of the sort. The stone over the doorway reveals that it was built in 1755. when James Cook was 27 years old and long after he had left home. It's not known, in fact, whether James Cook even saw the house, which was inhabited by his parents, let alone set foot in it. This is acknowledged in the shifting apostrophe, where once it read Cook's Cottage, apostrophe S, referring to the singular Captain James Cook, it now reads Cook's Cottage, S apostrophe, referring to any number of the Cook family. So if what is written remains, what is spoken vanishes into the air with the breath. It's volatile, it quickly vaporizes and disappears, it flies away. A contract, a secret, a declaration. When uttered, it's formless and is created and destroyed in the same instant. Words can pass easily from one form to another. In chemistry, to sublime is to pass from being a gas, sorry, to pass from being a solid into a gas without first passing through being a liquid. In the act of reading silently, words pass from a solid state on the page to a spiritual airborne state of thought without passing through the liquid of the mouth. And indeed, language becomes a sort of spirit that possesses the reader. Let's look at the archaic verb formation, methinks. It's a surviving Old English dative construction, often used today in a mock pompous way to mean I think or it seems to me, where me is the object, not the subject of the sentence. Just a quick grammar lesson to, to go over the basics. In English, a basic sentence construction would go subject, verb, object. He reads the letter. Thomas kisses Henry. They plant the tree, okay? So in this sentence, the me is actually the object because if it was the subject, it would be I. So just to make it clear, because the object usually goes after the verb, we're gonna put it after the verb. So me, thinks me. So the subject here is unknown, there's no subject. But there's a clue. The verb, thinks, is in the third person. So it suggests, but it doesn't make explicit, he, she, or it thinks me. The subject, the thing or the person doing the thinking, it isn't the me, it isn't I thinks me. And it's probably not the thing around which, the item around which thought is manifesting itself. It's not it thinks me it. But it's a third entity who's doing the thinking via the speaker. What this suggests to me is that thinking was thought of at the time, not as something within the capacity and the volition of the individual who is merely a conduit of thought, but it but thought was something that came from an external source. Have a look at this painting by Bellini. It's called Sacred Conversation. Look at each figure. They're all consumed by their own thoughts, engaged in a private, silent conversation, apparently with the divine. This painting positions the act of thinking as blessed inspiration rather than a human faculty. It implies that in the process of thinking, enlightenment happens, spiritual enlightenment. It suggests that every thought is part of a conversation with a God and every thinker an instrument of holy guidance. What thinks you? Hang on a minute, you think to yourselves. If that were true, if I were truly an instrument of holy guidance, if I were a prophet, a chosen one, where are my stigmata? And you would be right to ask. Traditionally, those touched by divine inspiration 
do display stigmata. Without them, the prophet will always doubt whether their calling is for real. But this is one of the most important things about receiving this celestial intuition, the possibility of being misled, of fakeness, and therefore the doubt that this brings. The artist, similar to the prophet, will hear these conflicting voices. Methinks is this divine intervention and the vulnerability that doubt brings in one statement. So when thoughts take form as words, when this inspiration takes shape, we become able to define ourselves and the world around us. And as individual separate words relate to one another in sentences, we also become capable of imagination. The mind draws from the pool of words that we know and combines them in new and unexpected ways. That's how, without ever having seen one, you can all quite easily imagine a golden mountain or a finger bun iced with rainbow sprinkles. Did it look anything like this? The human imagination is an incredible thing. Once language has been acquired, the owner cannot be rid of it. 90% of everything you say you have heard in the last 48 hours. Written signs entice reading. Conversations solicit eavesdropping. And gestures become entrapped in its symbolism as extensions of language. A handshake, a kiss, or a wink. Now, I need two people to help me with this next bit, so can I have some volunteers? All right, thanks. <laughs> you got volunteered. So you're King Henry. You. The year is uh, 1162. And you have a really good friend. So you're King Henry II. You have a really good friend. Um, his name's Thomas Beckett. Do you want to choose your Thomas Beckett? John yep, up you get John. Thank you. So you two are really good mates. So show that you're really good mates. Excellent. So you're so, you're so good. You're an advisor and a friend to King Henry II. And you're so close that you decide that you want Thomas Beckett ordained as the Archbishop of Canterbury. Mm -hmm. Okay? Because you're pretty sure you see eye to eye on everything. So ordain him sure. Archbishop of Canterbury. Excellent. So this would be a marriage made in heaven, a beautiful union of church and state, okay? So once Thomas Beckett gets ordained, he starts to get pretty cheeky. He starts to demand some things that King Henry wasn't expecting. So you start asking for more power, more privileges, more land, and you are not happy, okay? So a rift grows between you. Show me that rift. All right. Excellent. And... Thomas Beckett has to flee into exile. Flee. <laughs> Thank you. That's, that's good enough. Thank you. <laughs> so after five years of hiding in France, Thomas Beckett wants to return home. So, is this on? Yep. So you ask King Henry if you can return home. Henry, my friend, I am ready to return. Will you receive me? So King Henry agrees, and he says that he'll accept Thomas um, back, Thomas Beckett back, in his love and grace. I accept you back in my love and grace. Come, come, come a bit closer. But Beckett was fearful. I'm afraid. He needed a sign. Stay there. You're not back in England yet. He needed a sign from King Henry that neither his job nor his life would be threatened. Repeat after me. Your promise. Your promise. Will only be made binding. Will only be made binding. With a kiss. With a kiss. On the lips. On the lips. <laughs> but King Henry 
refused. Repeat oh. <laughs> after me. Yep. Earlier on. Earlier on. In a fit of rage. In a fit of rage. I swore a solemn oath to myself. I swore a solemn oath to myself. Never to give the kiss. Never to give the kiss. To Thomas Beckett again. To Thomas Beckett again. <laughs> what to do? The Pope even intervened. He was like, come on, King Henry, give him the kiss, just do it. King Henry offered the kiss from his own son, but Thomas Beckett wanted the kiss from King Henry himself. He was also really keen to return home. And seeing as King Henry wouldn't back down, he decided to do so without the security of the kiss. Come home. And what a mistake that was. Only a few days afterwards, he got up to his same antics and King Henry, really pissed off, said, Will no one rid me of this troublesome priest? Will no one rid me of this troublesome priest? Without the security of the kiss, four of the king's knights, overhearing what King Henry said, decided to act on this rhetorical question and visited... Oh, you've, you've beheaded yourself in advance! <laughs> visited Thomas Beckett in his church, slicing off the top of his head and spreading his brains on the church floor. Thank you. Give them a round of applause. <laughs> this is how we once understood the weight of gestures. <laughs> Today, ritualised forms of touching have given way to rituals involving documents or objects as proxies. The planting of trees is an elaborate handshake, a contract minus the signature, a promise without the kiss, where the purpose of the agreement is channeled through an ambiguous and symbolically flexible object. Here we see Sarkozy playfully punching Medvedev during a tree planting ceremony at the 2007 G8 summit in Japan. The Yezo spruce pictured here represents pity. The trembling poplar planted here by these Northern Irish ministers represents courage. The pinstripe represents the connection of heaven and earth. The foot on the shovel represents readiness. The oak tree symbolizes independence and hospitality. Black velvet represents insomnia. <laughs> the left foot on the right side of the shovel foretells impending disaster. <laughs> Pearls symbolize charity, purity, spiritual transformation, wisdom, honesty, integrity, love, knowledge, and wealth. The red bud tree is the tree from which Judas hung himself. If you plant one, you'll get a fever. The fever can be avoided by spitting nine times. The further up a girl holds her chopsticks, the further from home she will marry. And in the case of a shovel, the further up the planting politician holds it, the more nonchalant he wishes to appear. Oh, more on that one. The white cloth represents cleanliness. Dirt represents dirt. The trench coat symbolises violence. The white suit represents a connection with God. Clasping the sapling trunk represents the desire to control. Planting a dead tree symbolises that an, o that, a, that an heir will take su succession of the throne. Inviting the green man to stamp under your tree will turn him into a mascot. Planting near a fence pays tribute to a dead pet. The clean shovel represents work which has yet to be undertaken. Planting the same tree twice brings economic downturn upon the country in which the garden is situated. Throwing soil represents fear. 
Signing a hoe represents a confusion of political leadership and celebrity. <laughs> Brandishing the shovel refers to a monarch's colonial history. Planting in the West Bank sends a message. The message is clear. We are here and will remain here. We are planting and building. This is an inseparable part of the state of Israel. The elm tree represents darkness and nightmares. Digging in asphalt is a sign that tree planting will soon turn into groundbreaking. Groundbreaking is a ritual practice before a high-rise building is erected. Group shovel touching is a sign of budget cuts. The trough of dirt represents an estrangement from nature. The white ribbon is a symbol against violence against women. The red ribbon is a symbol of support and awareness for those living with HIV. The candy stripe ribbon says, Merry Christmas. The hung helmet represents the death of a soldier. Group tree planting recalls the act of lynch mobbing. Destruction takes on the imagery of rejuvenation. As a teenager, Nick Cave stole a sapling tree from the botanical gardens just over there, about 150 metres away. He carried it via public transport and planted it in his mother's garden in St Kilda. It was an apology for a misdeed. Ironically, 37 years later, the now famous muse musician was invited to plant a commemorative lime tree in the very same botanical gardens. The tree is dedicated to thefts that have been redressed and thefts that are yet to be redressed. I encourage you to seek it out. There are also many trees that do not have plaques and were not planted in ceremonies. You may find it hard to believe, but there are trees that can plant themselves. Such trees embody the shining sun, the falling rain and the blowing wind. And if you stand under them, they will shelter you. Hello. Uh, th thank you, Gabrielle, for that beautiful presentation. Uh, hello, everybody. I'd, I'd like to just first echo the um, sentiments from uh, Anita and Gabrielle and uh, acknowledge the traditional owners of the land, the Bunwurrung people, and uh, pay respects to elders past and present. Um, <coughs> this coming through okay. Just be yourself. Um, thanks for coming, everyone. It's a nice afternoon, and glad you could all be here with me. Most everything I know about uh, being a human uh, has come from my mum. Uh, when my brother and I were kids, uh, and mum would drop us off to a school social, uh, her last words before she drove off would be, have fun, look after each other, just be yourself. 
It was at those school socials that I first gained an appreciation for thoughts uh, and feelings and how the two don't always go hand in hand. Popping my pimples in vain, a 15-year-old me discovering that the fantasy is always better than the reality. In the Spanish town of uh, San Sebastian, there's a tradition at, uh, at the end of every school year where the children gather around at the beach and light bonfires. They gather around the flames and throw in uh, their school books from the past year, burning them in a bizarre ritual of breaking free from the shackles of homework and examinations. As an Australian, I've found the practice strange, uh, mainly because if it were done here in December, half the country would be on fire. So. Uh, five years ago, when I was living in Germany, uh, I kept up to date with the most important news from home via the AGE website. Uh, when I came across an article highlighting a shortage of sperm donors in Victoria, something inside me clicked. It wasn't long after arriving back in Melbourne, I started the process of becoming a sperm donor. After much paperwork and counselling, I was shown to the little room with the vinyl couch and the magazines and DVDs and the little plastic cup with my name on it. At the same time I was undertaking this process, I was also spending a lot of time at my mum's place helping her get rid of old crap. In my helping, I found an old roll of film with the leader sticking out. There's nothing like a new old roll of film. Back in the little room, I fired up the DVD player and pulled out my camera to snap a few pictures of the room for my files. I dropped the cup off to the nurse and the film off to the lab. The results for both weren't exactly as I'd hoped. Uh, though, though I can procreate privately, it turns out my sperm is not suitable for public consumption and the roll of film I shot had already been shot some 16 years earlier in 1996. Um, here you can see my mother and I, uh, sorry, my brother and my mother sitting on a piano stool overlaid with the opening credits to Electric Blue Part 23. Um, and this one is uh, one of my brother and I on the couch and a, a copy of a heavily used magazine entitled Gallery. Um, hi, Mum. Yeah. Sometimes life gives you problems and sometimes your solutions to those problems create brand new problems you hadn't even thought of. In this instance, somewhere between a thought and a feeling were 10,000 specks of polystyrene. It was in this very basin uh, in 2007 I learned a, a valuable lesson that I carry with me to this day. Uh, heavily clogged with hair, uh, the drain was in desperate need of cleaning. I, I poured about half a bottle's worth of lighter fluid down the drain with a view to drench the hair down there in flammable liquid. Uh, I then lit it, um, hoping the ensuing inferno would burn the obstruction away and, and I would be on my way to collect the due thanks and praise from my housemate. Uh, the, the plan didn't work. Uh, on a positive note, uh, the exercise didn't create a brand new problem uh, like a house fire. This is a picture of me eating paint. Uh, footpaths are built so they have a slope that channels the water into the gutter when it rains. Uh, motorcycles uh, with a kickstand are, are built so the bike will lean safely uh, to the side on which the kickstand is housed, They're just like this. 
Uh, when you park a motorcycle with its kickstand competing against the angle of the slope of a footpath, uh, problems can arise. Uh, one such problem arose in early July 2014. Uh, I was atop the motorbike uh, when the competing angles were competing too much and the bike passed its tipping point and headed straight for the gutter. Still straddling the bike, I, I thought it was a good idea to widen my stance, uh, allowing the bike to fall safely within the triangle between my left and right legs and the ground. Look like this. Uh, the 150 kilogram machine didn't do exactly what I had planned. Uh, instead, landing with the end of the handlebar onto my fourth toe on my right foot, it, it had now become my problem. With my foot modelling days now behind me, the focus was on recovery. Uh, I'd like to take this opportunity to publicly thank Amelia Borg and Chin Lim for taking me to the hospital, uh, my girlfriend Sheena for bringing food from stalactites to the hospital, uh, the hospital, um, St Vincent's in Fitzroy, uh, and the light green coloured plastic card that lives in my wallet. I can't remember the first time I tried cheese um, and I can't remember when I made the decision to make some of my own. Uh, I, I can remember thinking it was a good idea and one I'd like to share with others, including you. Here's how it's made. First, you want to grind up the pre-cheese. In a lot of recipes, they tell you to use half an ounce but I'm not after the cheese that'll disable you, so I've used a quarter ounce here. Next, you lay the pre-cheese onto some cheesecloth and wrap it up into a little parcel and tie the parcel up with string. Uh, then you melt about 300 grams of unsalted butter in a double boiler, like so, and then add 250 mils of water. Uh, you place the parcel into the melted butter and let it sit there for two and a half hours with the lid on, turning it every 20 to 30 minutes. Um, now you want to be careful not to run out of water in the saucepan, so check that it doesn't run out every so often. Uh, once the time is up, squeeze all the cheesy goodness from the parcel and then leave the bowl of cheese butter in the fridge where the water will separate. Uh, now you have your cheese butter, you can turn it into all sorts of things. Uh, I, I've decided to make some cheese brownies um, using the Donahay family recipe. Um, and then 45 minutes into cheese brownies and chill and he gives you this look. <laughs> Enjoy cheese safely, please. Uh, sometimes I'm so overjoyed with the smallest achievements, like digging a trench around my tent on a weekend when it doesn't stop raining. That's for everyone who, who likes little things. The slack worker follows a wristwatch um, that runs slow at the start of the day and a wall clock that runs fast at the end of the day. These next pictures have no accompanying words, so I'll sit and watch with you.
Thank you. Good night. Science fiction is a genre I never knew I loved. After all, isn't it just robots, aliens, spacesuits and end of days? Yet through it, at least through its screen, I've seen other worlds. Worlds in which the infinite is attainable, yet it's the fallible and the finite that we choose every time. Through its lens I've learned to look at our own world in parallel. I've seen impossible things within reach, normality that is not as it seems. I have time travelled, I have questioned existence, I've fallen in love. I've been through the uncanny valley and back again. Do you have a sense that we're not alone? That there is another you living in a parallax universe? I've been told twice in my life that I have a doppelganger. Once was many years ago when I wore glasses and I had my hair cut in the fashion of a mullet, uh, which I would later regret. I only ever saw this earlier doppelganger out of the corner of my eye. Was she shorter or taller? Prettier, more evolved. I never dared to look too close for fear of what I might recognise. So I could never verify if indeed she was my doppelganger. The other time in my life was four months ago at a cafe around the corner from my then place of work. A woman, a carbon copy of me, would go into the cafe most days, around 8am. The waitress wondered why she would see this lady make several costume changes over the course of one day. It turns out that I, the actual me, would always come to the cafe later in the day, around lunch or in the afternoons. Finally, after some confused exchanges, the waitress realised that we're in fact two separate beings. John Donne, the British metaphysical poet, saw his wife's doppelganger on the streets of Paris, the same night as the stillbirth of their daughter. He recounted this to his friend Robert. I've seen a dreadful vision since I saw you. I've seen my dear wife pass twice by me through this room with her hair hanging about her shoulders and a dead child in her arms. I cannot be surer that I now live than that I have not slept since I saw you and am as sure that at her second appearing, she stopped, looked me in the face and vanished. Dunn would go on to write these immortal words 10 years later. No man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent a part of the main. Any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind and therefore never send to know for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. On the 9th of July 1975, the Dutch artist Bastian Adder set off across the Atlantic in a four metre long sailing boat 
named the Ocean Wave. Adders was the smallest craft in history to attempt such a crossing. A solo performance on and for the high seas, the work was titled In Search of the Miraculous. Over his 33 years, Adder himself didn't much care to talk about his work, perhaps a good sign. When asked to explain the significance of the act of falling in his work, he simply replied, because gravity overpowers me. Another man who would enter into oblivion in the landscape he treated as material was the American Robert Smithson. To Smithson, the world and the art he made from it was born of entropy. The idea that it's easier to lose energy than to keep it. In Smithson's universe, all energy and matter burn before transmuting into a total sameness, a forever void future. While he became a central fugal force in downtown New York of the 60s and early 70s, Smithson was a Jersey boy. He grew up in Passaic, a small town founded by Dutch traders in the 1600s. 300 years later, Passaic would see the foundation of a small experimental TV station called W2XCD. It would begin transmissions in 1931, making Passaic the birthplace of television. Writing, photography and walking were of equal importance to Smithson, who used these gestures to inform his monuments of one kind or another. In 1967, he caught the number 30 bus from the Port Authority in New York, bound for his birthplace. Zipping down the highway, Smithson read the pulp sci-fi novel, Earthworks, by Brian W. Aldous, about a future in which humans manufacture artificial soil. In a twist of fate or a fitting coincidence, Smithson's own manufactured landscapes would become known as earthworks. Smithson began to walk, to tour what he called the monuments of Passaic, New Jersey. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder, he said. There's nothing natural about the Museum of Natural History. Nature is simply another 18th and 19th century fiction. Smithson loved the anti-pastoral, the vacant, the post-industrial. He wondered whether Passaic had replaced Rome as the eternal city, a zero panorama in a constant state of flux, an archaeological site in which past and future battle to rewrite the present. He said, my work is impure. It is clogged with matter. There's no escape from the physical, nor is there any escape from the mind. The two are in a constant collision course. You might say that my work is like an artistic disaster, a quiet catastrophe of mind and matter. Smithson saw entropy as both decay and life force, a necessary transformation of society and culture, the architecture of entropy, of ruins in reverse. On the 20th of July, 1973, Smithson died in a plane crash he was scouting for sites for a new earthwork in Amarillo, Texas. Just like Ada and so many men and some women before, Smithson would be survived by his art. His life would come to be defined by it. His central work, Spiral Jetty, is a 460-metre coil of mud, salt crystals, basalt rocks and water on the northeastern shore of the Great Salt Lake in Utah. The work disappears or reappears in times of rain or drought. It was once hidden underwater for 30 years. What was once black basalt against blood red water has turned white and rose pink with shifting time and climates. Some wish to preserve the jetty, to return it to its original colour and conditions. But knowing what we know about Smithson and his entropy, perhaps Spiral Jetty should be allowed its own lifespan its own passage of time. Smithson was attracted to the non-site, to the ruin in reverse. What would he have made of 21st century Dubai, one of the world's largest and most intense building sites?
The city is under construction 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, pausing only for Friday prayers. If history is read through geology, through the layering of time, sediment and architecture, what can we learn from a constructed landscape, from an entirely constructed culture? Smithson saw Passaic as a zero panorama. Dubai sees itself as a city from zero, a city without a past. Built from the ground up, devouring sky, desert and sea. A city without remorse. Borges once wrote, I saw all the mirrors in the planet and none reflected me. The writer Shimon Bashar says that if you stand on Sheikh Zayed Road in downtown Dubai, all you see is an endless lineup of multicolored mirror glass skyscrapers, a city reflecting its own reflections ad infinitum. Mirror glass is what architecture becomes when it wants to say something, but it doesn't know what. Is there a more potent image of emptiness? In Dubai, fantasies become concrete reality. The city boasts the world's tallest skyscraper, the largest marina, the biggest motorway intersection and the world's largest mall. Perhaps it's already broken the world record as the site of the most world records. Natural climate is no barrier to artificial ecologies. In winter, Dubai averages 29 degrees Celsius. In summer, it heats up to 45. Yet, through the wonders of modern engineering and technocratic vision, Dubai has a rotating mountain that remains snow-capped all year round and a water world, an irrigated green belt, and an artificial river. As Bashar notes, it's the logic of air conditioning and heating, extended and amplified into a magic that can conjure up every ecology humans have ever coveted. And so, we come to the conjuring up of Dubai's coastline. The cannibalization of one's own territory in order to create a rebuilt world, only better. In 2003, Nikhil Properties, a private developer, began construction of an artificial archipelago, 300 man-made islands in the shape of the world. Our world is not a political world, explains a Nikhil spokesperson. But the absence of politics comes with a price. Countries and states are on sale to the highest bidder at prices ranging from 6 million to 64 million US dollars. For that princely sum, you get a lump of sand and the right to start your own micronation. Meanwhile, as if the world was not enough, Dubai's artificial palm islands have become a status symbol address. Made from sand dredged up from the bottom of the Persian Gulf, the palm islands, when complete, will add 520 kilometers of non-public beaches to Dubai's coast. Artificial ecology is a new normal. Coastal erosion, altered wave patterns, the loss of wildlife and decreased sunlight to seashore vegetation are just some of the fallout associated with the authentic production of the new. Imagine for a moment the doomed Smithson and Adder are still with us. A speck on a satellite map, we find Adder on the English island of the world, bearded, half-crazed, singing sea shanties, and constantly falling under the weight of decades upon decades of gravity. Without camera or audience, he has continued to perform for 40 years after his death, with only the sea in mind. Smithson, on the other hand, sees Dubai's artificial islands as his greatest conceptual challenge. He calls in his own engineers, cranes and diggers, with the purpose of connecting all of Dubai's man-made coastline into the one singular and almost infinite jetty. This work will be eternal, all-consuming, never-ending. He recognises it as his ultimate monument, one man's attempt at the Nazcar lines. Perhaps that final glimpse of brilliance before the whole world implodes into entropic sameness, the forever void of his imagination. From a parallel time in another sky, he views this final, always evolving work from on high. In resculpting the landscape in sand, 
and reclaiming Dubai's ecology in the name of entropy rather than immortality. He knows that he was right all along. Nature and culture are one and the same. Meanwhile, in a parallel sea, China is building islands too. I've never been to China, yet I'm forever bound by appearance skin deep to this unknown motherland. The nine dash line, spider marks on a map drawn up at the close of World War II, show the contested waters of the South China Sea. In 1947, China claimed the Paracels, Pratas and Spratly Islands from a defeated Japan. Six nations all stake their claim in the region each driven by an insatiable mix of emotion and nationalism. With the rise and fall of empires, sea levels and sands, now it is only brute force, warships, aircrafts and artificial borders that count. In Fiery Cross Reef and other fittingly named parts of the region, no other nation comes close to China in the building of islands. 800 kilometres away from the landmass of the Middle Kingdom, China now presides over a great wall of sand. Living as I do on an island, far away in mind, spirit and outlook from my ancestors, I nonetheless come to recognise my own need to claim territory. So, I make islands now too, of a kind. Interior states made of synthetic gold. To build is to mark space, to decide who to keep in and who to keep out. Now I carry the means to make shelter and new nations wherever I go. Later this year, I too will journey to the Nine Dash Line to see for myself what it looks like to claim territory with a God's eye view. I will build a new island. Thanks. <laughs>